So, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to Luke. When you get to Luke, say amen. Hey, you guys are good. Drop down to verse 37. Luke 11 and 37, I'll be reading the verses to verse 44. Now, when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. When the Pharisee saw it and was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. But the Lord said to him, Now you, Pharisees, clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside you are full of robbery and wickedness. You foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give that which is within a, as charity, and when all things are clean for you. Verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing of his most precious and holy word. Let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together, Lord. Once again, Lord, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our heart to receive what it is that you have for us, Lord. We thank you for those that are here, those that are on their way, Lord, those that are traveling, those that are home recuperating, Lord, or watching uh, 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 live broadcast or even recorded broadcast, Lord. We thank you that, Holy Spirit, uh, you are the teacher, you are the guide, you are the one who opens our eyes and our ears and our heart. You are the one that leads us into Scripture. Father, we just thank you. We lay our burdens down at your feet, Lord, and we look to you. Uh, for instruction. We look to you for guidance. We look to you for hope, healing, and strength, and all the things, Lord, that only you can provide. And so in this, we give you thanks and praise and glory and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, title of my message this morning is Concealed Tomb. A concealed tomb is a place where when, a place where someone could unknowingly be defiled. In other words, Old Testament scripture talks about the graveyards and and cemeteries and things and said they should not go there because of of spirits and stuff. And they would be defiled before going into worship. Uh, And so another thing that's going on in here is this woe to the Pharisees. A couple of things I want to unpack. The concealed tomb motif, and then also woe to the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, at the time uh, where the Old Testament ends, they were a very uh, pious group. They were a very righteous group. They started out with the idea that they were going to study scripture, that they were going to return to God. And they were uh, a very solid group in the beginning. 
But 400 years later, by the time Jesus comes around, they're basically just a political outfit and it's about them. They want to be seen, they want to be heard, but they're not necessarily men of God. And so what the passage here is about, Jesus is saying, woe unto you Pharisees, because he knew where they started. He knew what they were supposed to be. Uh, he knew what they were preaching, but yet, and they were teaching, but yet he also knew how they were acting and how they were behaving. Many times in scripture, you will see Jesus saying, woe to you Pharisees. And it's because he understood what they were supposed to be about, and they kind of left that and drifted away from that. Another thing here is look at motivation. In this passage, Jesus challenges the Pharisees to look at their own motivation. You know, in ourselves, we should always be looking, what motivates me? Why do I want to do this? Why should we be doing this? So whether it's in the workplace, at home, in relationships, obviously in church as a Christian, how we treat one another. What is the motivation for what we do? We, we sometimes have to take a look at that because sometimes we can drift away from the true motivation and the, motiva and the true motivation is the gospel that we are saved because we understand that we are sinners separated from God. But God so loved us, he sent his only begotten son to die on the cross for us. And if we believe that and confess to the point that we're willing to confess that to others, the result is salvation. But you see, that is what begins this change in us. It changes our motivation. Now we are living for him and through him and by him. And so we have to change what it is that we do and if there isn't this complete conversion, if there isn't this change, if there isn't this baptism, if you will, baptism again means change, if that's not going on, then you kind of look like one thing, but you act like something else. And this is what he's bringing out here. So in verse 37, it says, Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. Guess who's coming to dinner? Jesus. And, you know, in that time, you would not invite someone to your house for a meal. You would not sit down with them for lunch, dinner, or whatever it might be if you were at odds with them. So this was a gesture on, on the part of the, uh, of the Pharisee to, to invite Jesus. But what's the motivation behind it? We always have to look at when somebody does thing, something, what is the motivation? behind it. It was a friendly gesture, for sure. Verse 8, 38. When the Pharisees saw it, that he was surprised that he had not ceremonially washed his hands before the meal. One of the things that amazes me in Scripture <clears throat> is that Jesus never, ever bypassed an opportunity to teach. Everything that he did was instructional. And here he is, he walks into this room, he knows what's gonna happen. He walks in, sits down at the table, and the rest of them are doing ceremonial washing or cleansing. Now Jesus knew the law, he knew what the law says about all of this, but he sits down at the table. And again, in verse 38, the Pharisee saw it and he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed. And one of the things that this goes back to, I explained it to you before, but it's mikvah. Mikvah is what they would have in the, in the temple. 
on the side of the temple. It was a, a like a square uh, opening. It was filled with water and it had steps. And it was for a ceremonial cleansing. If you went to the high priest, if you had an illness or an issue of blood or you had just had a child or, or something was going on and you, were, uh, you had to be examined by the priest. And once the priest said you were now clean, you went into mikvah. In other words, you walked down into this and it was a ceremonial cleansing. What you were saying is before God, you know, I was not pure and holy, now I am. You will go down and come back up. This is why when John the Baptist was baptizing, People were going to be baptized because they understood it in terms of mikvah. They realized there was a change that they needed, uh, this repentance, and so it was a form of mikvah for them. So mikvah is where we get uh, baptism. And it's a ceremonial cleansing, and it's an Old Testament custom. Jesus knew the law, but Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, as we know. He came to fulfill the law, and to give the proper context. It's like the Sermon on the Mount, when you read Matthew chapter 5, beginning you know, with the Beatitudes. When you, when you read that, Jesus does such a marvelous job of saying, you have heard it said, or the scripture says, and then he says, but I tell you, with a transforming initiative, he says, this is what it means. So in other words, he right-sizes the scripture, because what happens? A lot of times we can take scripture and misinterpret it and use it the wrong way. And this is, this is the beauty of, 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 of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, I tell you, this is how this passage is to be used. I tell you, this is what it means. And again, he's talking about woe to you Pharisees. You're doing one thing, but what is your motivation? And he's trying to bring them back and show them what they should truly be doing. So again, he's not trying to destroy the law. He's coming to fulfill the law, but giving the proper context to what is actually going on. Verse 39. But the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you, you are full of robbery and wickedness. He goes right after it. He says, you're cleaning the outside, but what's also important is the inside. In other words, we need to look inside because that's where the motivation comes from. You know, we can look like one thing on the outside. I can walk around and, you know, and carry a big Bible. I can wear a suit or uh, some garment or something else or preach like this and say, oh, he looks like a godly man or whatever. But it's not until you look at my heart that you begin to understand if I'm really following scripture or not. You know, you can look one way. You can present yourself one way. You can say you are a Christian, but God is looking at the heart and we should be looking at our own hearts, understanding God is looking at our heart for that change. Because if we are just doing it in a ceremonial fashion, what is the point? And a lot of times we do things out of habit and we forget why we were doing them. And we realize we're doing them, but there's no scriptural purpose to them. Again, it's like my story, you've heard it before, about the daughter who asked her mother, why do we always cut the end of the pot roast off before we cook the pot roast? And the mother says, well, that's, honey, that's just the way we always do it. 
We always cut the end off, we put the pot roast in the pan, and we put it in the oven. Well, that wasn't good enough for the daughter. The daughter says, something else is going on here. That just doesn't sound right. Why would you be cutting the end off and just throwing it away? So she goes to the grandmother. She says, Grandma, why do we cut the end of the pot roast off before we put the pot roast in the oven? That's the way my mom does it. And she says, oh, honey, don't you understand that when your mother was little, we didn't have a pan big enough for the whole pot roast, so we had to cut some of it off. Throwing away good pot roast when you could put the whole thing in the pan. See, sometimes we do things and we don't even know why we're doing them. And this is what Jesus is trying to point out. You know, you're doing things. 400 years ago, you used to be pious. You, you, they used to call the, 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 the Pharisees the uh, parushin. It was like you, you were the righteous. You were the devout of God. And now what are you now? You're, you're, you're a political outfit. You want to be seen. You want the hem on your garment to be longer than anybody else's. You want people to see you in the synagogue. Uh, you, you want to read the scriptures in the synagogue. You want people to see you giving your tithes. You want to stand on the corner and be noticed. You want people to come to you, but inside of you, your heart is dirty. He says you're cleaning the outside, but what about the inside? You see, and this is what plagues us today in Christianity, that if we don't examine our hearts, if we don't look at the hearts of others, we could just be ceremonially doing things with a depraved and wicked heart. But it looks like. You realize every cult that has come down to the pike, and cult means worship, by the way, worshiping the leader, Every cult that comes along, they use Jesus as the hook. They'll tell you a little bit about Jesus. Everybody's heard about Jesus, and a lot of people don't know, obviously, about Jesus. So they'll use Jesus Christ as the hook, and they get people thinking they're coming to church. They get people thinking they're coming to Christianity, and what they do is they stop preaching Jesus so much, and they start preaching themselves. And now Jesus is in the background, and they're in the forefront. And it's a subtle, slick little change. And if you don't know better, you get sucked into these things. And this is the danger because these things can go on inside a church. You know, we look one way, but is our heart changed? Are we really who we confess to be? That's why it's important to examine ourselves to look inside. Jesus looks at the heart and this is again where we find the motivation. Why do you do the things that you do? Motivation. I tell people all the time, I'm looking for motivation. Whether it's in church people that I deal with, Christianity, or in the outside world, I look for motivation. Because if I can find your motivation, then I can better understand you. And sometimes, you, unfortunately, you see motivation that is wrong, that is off then you know where this is going to go. And so you need to protect yourself to that. So from the outside, we looked apart, but from the inside, this is where change occurs. You see, we're a work of heart. God is looking at our heart for the change. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. We know the brain is not in the heart, but the passion is in the heart. And this is what he's saying. That which you are passionate about, you will follow. Some people are passionate about fame and fortune, and that's what they follow. 
You know, we see it all the time. We see it on TV. We see influencers. We see all this stuff that's going on out there. But that stuff also creeps into the church. They want fame and fortune inside the church. The outside might look good, but the inside is desperately wicked. It has not been changed. Look at it in terms of leadership. Our leaders, you have to look at their heart. Whether it's in the church, whether it's in the business world, where you're a leader in your home, uh, politics, whatever it might be, look at the motivation, look at the heart, because that's what's going to guide them. Whatever they are passionate about, it will guide them. Years ago, when I first started this walk with the Lord, football was Sunday morning this time of year. It was, it was everything. I was passionate about football. And we used to go to a, a Catholic church, Roman Catholic church, and I figured, oh, okay, I, I can work this out because they got services on Friday night. They got a Sunday night. If I miss it, I can, you know. But my motivation was football. My motivation wasn't God. See, the church was just to look good. The motivation was football. But then when I really came to that point where I submitted my life to God, where I really, really confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, all of a sudden, football wasn't that important anymore. And I realized I could, I could tape the game. I could watch the game later. I didn't have to have season tickets anymore. Because what happened? My heart changed. I still love football, but I love God more. Want to follow God more. All these outside things, that's, that's fine. I'm not saying all that stuff is, is wrong. It's just your motivation. What is first in your life? What is first? So look at motivation in terms of leadership. If, we, if our leaders are motivated correctly, then the outcome will come out right. If they are not wired right and they're doing things out of selfish ambition, it will never, ever turn out right. And unfortunately, this plagues the church as well. We need to look at our leaders. We need to look at what we're doing. We have to all examine our, ourselves. Why are we doing what we're doing? What is the purpose? Who gets the glory? Who gets the praise? Who gets the honor? Hopefully, it's Christ. Verse 40. It says, you foolish ones, did not he who made the outside make the inside also? You know, this is Jesus, God, looking at, you know, don't you realize, you know, it's like when, when Moses and Jeremiah were trying to get out of doing what God called them to do. And he says, if I made your body, and I'm paraphrasing, if I made your body, I made your mouth, and if I made your mouth, I can put the words in it. You know, God is over all things. You can't fool God. You know, looking one way, God knows. That's why the only one who's going to judge us is Jesus Christ. Because he's looking at the heart. And he knows what's in the heart. We are a work of heart. God is trying to change us. See, he says, you don't need a new cup. You just need to clean the inside and the outside of the cup. 
I remember one time, <laughs> my aunt and uncle came over. They always come over on like a Saturday morning early. We make coffee, whatever, we have all the stuff. And a cup was sitting there, and my aunt got it, and she poured me a cup of coffee. And she gave it to me, and I wasn't thinking anything of it, and we were doing stuff. And all of a sudden, I went to go pick up the cup, and I saw all this junk floating in it. And all of a sudden, I realized it was a cup that the milk had been in it like a day or so before, and this was spoiled milk on the inside. But see, she just looked at the outside of the cup, and it was where the rest of the cups were at. So she didn't bother to look at the outside because the, I mean, she didn't bother to look at the inside because the outside looked clean. But when I looked inside, I said, but what if I didn't look inside? And all of a sudden you get that taste in your mouth and all of a sudden you realize, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to spit it out or am I going to swallow it? Because you realize it's bad and it could be poison, it could be something harmful to you. All of a sudden you realize you don't need a new cup, just clean the cup God gave you, this vessel. You know, in church, you know, we praise God and sometimes, you know, people don't understand why people do this. You know what this is? This is a vessel. You're saying, Lord, fill me up. Your love, your power, your strength, Holy Spirit, fill me up. That's what this is. You're surrendering to God, but you're like a cup. And he pours into you. Allow God to cleanse us. You don't need a new cup. It's like, it's like the Apostle Paul when he was Saul. He was zealous for the Old Testament. He was zealous for the things that he was doing, you know, and he got stopped on the road to Damascus and you know, he, had that, he had the conversion and all that. His personality didn't change after he got saved. He was still the same pit bull he was before. Only this time now, he was a pit bull for God. He was going to go after it. You don't need a new cup. You just need to cleanse the one God has given you. See, our cleansing in Christ is a complete work. When he was on the cross and he says it's, when he says it's finished, that means it's finished. That means there was no other work that needs to be done. Everything now is through Jesus Christ. And when we come to Christ, when we confess our sins, repent from those sins, believe in our heart that God so loved us, he sent Jesus Christ to die for us, and we confess that, we, become, we cleanse the inside. But we always have to check. We always have to go back and for that renewal. Lord, am I still clean? Lord, search my heart. Create in me, O oh Lord, a clean heart. Renew a steadfast spirit within me, O oh God. This renewal, it should be part of our, our, our prayer life on a daily basis. Search me, O oh God. Find anything that is not of you. Bring it to me that I might Eliminate this in my life. It's renewal. Christianity is renewal because we were destined for death and now we're destined for life and eternity. It is a transformation and that's what Christianity is. We are transformed from people that were dead in their sin to people that are now alive in Christ. And that transformation is not superficial. It has to penetrate our very soul, our very being. 
And this is what Jesus is trying to get these Pharisees to see because they thought they were all that in a bag of chips. In reality, they weren't. And that's why Jesus just came in, didn't bother to cleanse, sat down, and gave him a Bible study. Verse 41. He says, But give that which is within as charity, and then all things are clean for you. You know, charity means give to the poor. And poor doesn't always necessarily mean those that don't have. I mean, certainly it does. But you know, when you are poor in spirit, when you do not have Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are poor. See, if we're spending so much time, look at me, look at me, see who I am, and we're not going out, and we're not preaching the gospel, we're not sharing the gospel, we're not getting anyone saved, we're not inviting them to church, we're not doing uh, uh, fellowships with people, we're not, we're not doing the things that, that we're called to do. We're just ceremonially looking good. But if you changes in there, then we realize we have to give out of the goodness that God has poured into us. And you see, you minister out of the overflow. If God is always pouring into you as a cup, as a vessel, that overflow is what you minister. You know, sometimes people say, well, I'm in a dry place. I, you know, I'm just not with God anymore. Yeah, because God isn't, hasn't been filling them up anymore. Get back to God and God can pour back into you. We should never be in a place where we feel dry. God's not using me or I can't. We've moved away from God. God didn't stop pouring. We moved away from God. It's like that machine in the restaurant. You know, if you want your cup filled, you got to go to the machine. you got to touch the button and it'll fill it. Don't expect it to be over here and you're going to get whatever it is you want to drink. you got to go to the source. And the source here is Jesus Christ. Give to the poor. Again, charity means give to the poor. In the context, the poor are those outside of God's will. The Pharisees are so concerned that their outward appearance, about their outward appearance, they neglected their hearts. And this is a subtle shift. You know, a lot of times we don't realize it. Sometimes people say, I don't know how I got to this place. I used to be on fire for God. I used to do these things, and now all of a sudden it's not. Well, God didn't change because my Bible says he's the same today, yesterday, and forevermore. My Bible says his word is true, will never ever fade away. It, it, it will perform what it's supposed to. So what happened? You moved away from God. That's what happened. We have to come back to where God is at. You see, an unchanged heart will destroy everything around it. It will destroy the organization it's involved in. Whether it's in church, whether it's in business, whether it's in community service, whether it's in a school program, whatever it is, those unchanged, unclean heart will destroy everything around it because it's not following God. It's meant for destruction. It's meant for self-gratification. See, that was a problem with the Pharisees. It was self-gratification. They weren't doing what they did in the beginning. See, an unchanged heart doesn't know how to repent. It doesn't see the poor. It doesn't see what's going on. It's unrepentant.
Verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you pay tithe and mint and rue and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. For these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You see, is there justice and love in what we do? The Christian is transformed by the love of God and the justice in Christ, and now we live that through Christ. Christ is now in us, and we now live through Christ. That same justice, that same love should be there. And the Pharisees were not acting out of justice and love. They were acting out of selfish gain. It was all about them. It's like we sang earlier, you know, God, it's all about you. And Christianity, when you study Christianity, starting in the late 60s and it really developed in the 70s and the 80s, all of a sudden Christianity became about the individual. It stopped being about God. It was about, the, it was about what I can get, what I can take away, what God is giving me. See, there's no service in that. There's no love in that. There's no justice in that. There's no charity in that. There's no going forth because it's all about the person. I went to, uh, um, when I was at Fuller Theological Seminary, one of my classes, I forget the title of the class, but one of the things that we did, we went to the Norton Simon Museum there in Pasadena. That's the one where if you watch the uh, Rose Parade, you always see that building that's right there across from the cameras. That's the Norton Simon Museum. And what was interesting in there, we were talking about art and how art affects, how art will, will depict what's on the minds of people. And I never really looked at it this way before. What I saw when I went there, the earliest paintings they had or the earliest drawings that they had or the earliest mosaics they had were all about God about the deity of God, who God is. And then as you move through the Middle Ages and then you, you started going uh, towards the Renaissance period and the Age of Enlightenment, all of a sudden now the artwork was about people and God, but you had not so much God, but you now had pictures of people. That's what they were painting. They went from painting pictures about God to now they were painting, painting pictures about people. And then when you keep going and you get to the modern era, now all the paintings and pictures and things are all about society. It's about buildings and, and, and cars and, and things and moving. and it's, we, we went from focusing on God to now focusing on society and life. And that was a commentary that art gives on that. And you see, that's the danger when you don't check your heart, when you don't realize what we're doing and why, why are we doing it. We will drift away and then we will become something else. Verse 43, 
42 again. Who woe to the Pharisees, for you pay tithe and mint, rue, and every kind of garden herb, and yet disregard justice and the love of God. But these are the things that you should have done without neglecting the others. You see, nominal Christianity, and that's in name only, nominal, neglects justice and love. Because it doesn't understand it. It's never, it's never, you've never changed. Nominal in name only, there's no conversion there. There's no change. You're just looking like something, dressing like something, telling people you're something. But at the end of the day, you're going to kill, steal, and destroy. You're going to hurt people because the love of God is not there. And this is what he's saying to these Pharisees. Woe unto you. You're just cleaning the outside but the inside is desperately wicked. The inside is still filthy. There needs to be a complete change. Where's fruit of the spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, the last part, self-control. You know, it's not fruit of the spirit, and that's Galatians uh, 5, 22, 23, and 24. You, it's not about which one of those you want to exhibit today. It's about all of it. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and self-control, all of that there. Not just the ones that you think work for you today. No, it's all of it. It's not fruits of the Spirit. It's fruit of the Spirit. In other words, evidence of the change. There has to be evidence of that change. Now verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the chief seats in the synagogue and the respectful greetings in the marketplace. You know, it's all about me. Our position should be one of humility because we realize it's not about me. Because I was dead in my sins. I was lost without God. I was hopeless. There was no point to my life. But God so loved me. He sent his only begotten son to die for me. And he gave me his word. And he gave me those that would preach the word to me. He gave me those that would pray for me. He gave me those that, that, that would spend the time to mentor and nurture and not give up. On all of us. God working, you know, through all of us for the common good. This is why we all rejoice when one person comes to the Lord. See, once you understand the goodness of God, once you understand the magnitude of what God has done for us, then we come to God in all humility. It's never going to be about me. It's always going to be about you. Because you have the heaven to take me to. No one else has that. You created me. You gifted me. You placed me. You loved me, and I neglected you. But like the father and the prodigal son, he didn't give up. When he saw me turn, he opens his arms to accept us. And what did he do with the prodigal son? 
He didn't tell him, you were bad, dude. You messed up. I don't know if I can ever trust you again. Yeah, I think you should just be one of the hired hands. Get in the barn and work with the rest of them. He didn't do that. He put the coat back on him. He put the ring back on his finger. He called for a feast. The point is, he gave him the same position that he had before he left. And this is what true forgiveness is. And so when you realize that forgiveness from God, he's putting us back in the position that we should have had originally before we sinned in the garden. He loves you that much. He loves me that much. He loves us that much that he's willing to do that. That puts us in a place of humility because we owe everything to him. There's nothing that we can do to earn this. That's what grace is. It's unmerited favor from God. Extended to us. We have to receive it when it's extended. Grace extended by God and received by the sinner. Close with this, verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like concealed tombs, and the people who walk over them are unaware of it. In other words, people that do this, people that are like the Pharisees, they defile others. It's like walking over a, a concealed tomb that would defile someone before worship that were around people that pretend to be or say they are, but in reality they are not. Because they're just cleansing the outside of the cup, not the inside of the cup. We're not going to get a new cup. God gave us one cup, one vessel. It's our responsibility to believe him, to trust him, to follow him, to confess. Concealed tombs, biblical law taught that contact with dead or anything connected with the dead made a person ritually unclean and thus disqualified them for worship. You don't have to turn to it, but that's Leviticus 21 verses 1 to 4 and verse 11 and numbers 19, 11 to 22. So unless we examine ourselves, we will be like the Pharisees who acted godly, but actually defiled those around them by coming unfit for worship. I don't know about you, and I hope I do, but I think we want pure worship. I think we want to feel the presence of God. I think we want to understand God with a pure and contrite heart. I think we want to come before God in all humility, knowing it's not we ourselves, but it is Him. And when we do that, when that change terminates our very being and we're willing to look at ourselves on a daily basis and make sure we're on the plumb line of God which is the scriptures we examine our hearts we examine our motivation we align ourselves with Christ 
And the end result is always going to be right. It's always going to be true. It's always going to be beneficial. It's always going to be helpful. It's always going to be healing. Strength and guidance, goodness, self-control, it's all there. And all we have to do is admit who we are and repent from those sins, confess Christ, and be willing to examine our hearts and say, cleanse me, O Lord. You know, I work on a sermon throughout the week. I don't finish the sermon until I deliver it. Pray about the sermon all week, but I pray right before I come up here. Because I do not want a chance something coming in in between all of that and changing the motivation and changing my heart. So let us pray. Lord, we come to you as vessels. Lord, we acknowledge that you created us. That you are Lord God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And Lord, we know that You see us and you saw us in our condition as sinners, estranged from you. But out of your love, you chose to save us. If we would only repent and believe and confess, then Lord, help us to examine our hearts. Let us not be like the Pharisees. Let us always be humble servants before you, O God. Restore a clean heart within me and a steadfast spirit. And Lord, as a church, our motivation and our purpose be clear. Strengthen us to do your will. And Lord, we'll be quick to give you all the praise and the honor and the glory. Because Lord, it's not about us. It's all about you. And we thank you and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. And the church said, Somebody praise the Lord. I think uh, Pastor Irwin already gave us our announcements and stuff. I just want to say a couple of things. We went out on uh, evangelism yesterday. And um, you should have seen Ophelia. Boy, she was out there, man, and it was hot, and she was going all over the place, you know, just talking to people and... and, and passing out, you know, scriptures and stuff. And it was a good time in the Lord. And I just want to encourage you that uh, uh, 
one of the things that I, I noticed that there's a lot of people, years ago when we used to do this, we would find more people were accepting or they were more friendly even if they didn't want to necessarily hear what you wanted to say. But now we're encountering more people that are militantly angry and do not want to hear what we have to say. That means we have to work that much harder. We have to pray much more. We have to understand much more. We have to go at it harder. The other thing that I've noticed that every Saturday that we have gone out from here, uh, Jehovah Witnesses have been up and down these streets all over. We need to make sure that people understand who God is and their position before a righteous God who demands righteousness from us and how we have fallen and how God is willing to restore us if we would only repent. We need to share the love of God in a compassionate and loving manner. But we need to be diligent in this.